0: CHAPTER X of The Forgotten Planet by Murray Leinster This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Men climb up to the savagery. They had food for days. They had brought mushrooms from the isolated thicket not too far beneath the clouds. There were the ants that Dick and Tet had distributed grandly, and not all of which had been used to secure escape from the canyon of the millipede had they found other food immediately they would have settled down comfortably in the fashion normal to creatures whose idea of bliss is a secure hiding place and food on hand so they do not have to leave it somehow they believed that this high place of bright light and new colors was secure but they had no hiding place and though they did accept with the unreasoning faith of children and savages, that there were no enemies here. They still wanted one. They found a cave. It was small, so that it would be crowded with all of them in it. But as it turned out, this was fortunate. At some time it had been occupied by some other creature, but the dirt which floored it had settled flat and showed no tracks. It retained faint traces of a smell which was unfamiliar, but not unpleasing. It held no connotation of danger. Ants stank of formic acid, plus the musky odor of their particular city. One could identify not only the kind of ant, but its home city, by sniffing at an ant trail. Spiders had their own hair-raising odor. The smell of a praying mantis was acrid, and all beetles reeked of decay. And, of course, there were those bugs whose main defense was an effluvium which tended to strangle all but the smell's happy possessor. This faint smell in the cave was different. The humans thought vaguely that it might possibly be another kind of man. Actually, it was the smell of a warm-blooded animal, but Burl and his fellows knew of no warm-blooded creatures but themselves. They had come above the clouds a bare two hours before sunset, of which they knew nothing. For an hour they marveled, staying close together. They were especially astounded by the sun, since they could not bear to look at it, but presently, being savages, they accepted it matter-of-factly. They could not cease to wonder at the vegetation about them. They were accustomed only to gigantic fungi and the few straggling plants Which tried so desperately to bear seed before they were devoured. Here they saw many plants and no fungi, and they did not see anything they recognized as insects. They looked only for large things. They were astounded by the slenderness and toughness of the plants. Grass fascinated them, and weeds. A large part of their courage came from the absence of debris upon the ground. The hunting ground of spiders were marked by grisly remnants of finished meals and where mantises roamed there were bits of transparent beetle wing and sharp spiny bits of armor not tasty enough to be consumed here in the first hour of their exploration they saw no sign that an insect like the lowland ones had ever been in this place at all but they could not believe the monsters never came they correctly and pessimistically assumed that their coming was only rare. The cave was a great relief. Trees did not grow close enough to give them a feeling of safety. Though they were ludicrously amazed at the invincible hardness of tree trunks, they had never known anything but insect armor and stone, which was as hard as the trunks of those growing things. They found nothing to eat, but they were not yet hungry. They did not worry about food while they still had remnants from their climb. When the sun sank low and crimson coloring filled the west, they were less happy. They watched the glory of their first sunset with scared, incredulous eyes. Yellows and reds and purples reared toward the zenith. It became possible to look at the sun directly. They saw it descend behind something they could not guess at. Then, there was darkness. The fact stunned them, so night came like this. Then they saw the stars for the first time, as they came singly into being, and the folk from the lowland crowded frantically into the cave with its faint odor of having once been occupied by something else. They filled the cave tightly. Burl had some reluctance to admit his terror. He and Saya were the last to enter and nothing happened nothing the sounds of sunset continued they were strange but soothing and somehow again ancestral memory spoke comfortingly they were the way night sounds ought to be burl and the others could not possibly know it but for the first time in forty generations on the forgotten planet human beings were in an environment really suited to them It had a rightness and a goodness which was obvious in spite of its novelty. And because of Burl's own special experience, he was a little bit better able to estimate novelties than the rest. He listened to the night noises from close by the cave's small entrance. He heard the breathing of his tribe's folk. He felt the heat of their bodies, keeping the crowded enclosure warm enough for all. Saya held fast to his hand, for the reassurance of the contact. He was wakeful and thinking very busily and painfully, but Saya was not thinking at all. She was simply proud of Burl. She felt to be sure a tumult which was fear of the unknown and relief from much greater fear of the familiar. She felt warm, prideful memories of the sight of Burl leading and commanding the others. She had absorbing fresh memories of the look and feel of sunshine, and mental pictures of sky and grass and trees which she had never seen before. Confusedly, she remembered that Burl had killed a spider, no less, and he had shown how to escape a praying mantis by flinging at it an ant, and he had grandly led the others up a mountainside it had never occurred to anybody else to climb and the giant millipede would have devoured them all, but that Burl gave commands and set the example, and had marched magnificently up the mountainside when it seemed that all the cosmos twisted and prepared to drop them into an inverted sky. Saya dozed, but Burl sat awake, listening, and presently, with fast-beating heart, he slipped out of the entrance to the cave and stared about him in the night there was a coolness such as he had never known before but nightfall was not long past there were smells in the air he had never before experienced green things growing and the peculiar clean odor of wind that has been bathed in sunshine and the oddly satisfying smell of resinous trees burl raised his eyes to the heavens he saw the stars in all their glory and he was the first human in two thousand years and more, to look at them from this planet. There were myriads upon myriads of them, varying in brightness, from stabbing lights to infinitesimal twinklings. They were of every possible color. They hung in the sky above him, immobile and unthreatening. They had not descended. They were very beautiful." Burl stared. Then he noticed that he was breathing deeply with a new zest. He was filling his lungs with clean, cool, fragrant air, such as men were intended to breathe from the beginning, and of which Burl and many others had been deprived. It was almost intoxicating to feel so splendidly alive and unafraid. There was a slight sound. Saya stood beside him, trembling a little. To leave the others had required great courage, but she had come to realize that if Burl was in danger. She wished to share it. They heard the night wind and the orchestra of night singers. They wandered aside from the cave mouth, and Saya found completely primitive and satisfying pride in the courage of Burl, who was actually not afraid of the dark. Her own uneasiness became something which merely added savor to her pride in him. She followed him wherever he went to examine this and consider that in the night-time. It gave her enormous satisfaction at once to think of danger and to feel so safe because of his nearness. Presently they heard a new sound in the night. It was very far away, and not in the least like any sound they had ever heard before. It changed in pitch as insect cries do not. It was a baying, yelping sound. It rose and held the higher note, and abruptly dropped in pitch before it ceased minutes later it came again saya shivered but burl said thoughtfully that is good sound he didn't know why saya shivered again she said reluctantly i am cold it had been a rare sensation in the lowlands it came only after one of the infrequent thunderstorms when wetted human bodies were exposed to the gusty winds that otherwise never blew. But here the nights grew cold after sundown. The heat of the ground would radiate to outer space, with no clouds to intercept it, and before dawn the temperature might drop nearly to freezing. On a planet so close to its sun, however, there would hardly be more than light hoar-frost at any time. The two of them went back to the cave. It was warm there because of the close packing of bodies and many breaths. Burl and Saya found places to rest and dozed off, Saya's hand again trustfully in Burl's. He remained awake for a long time. He thought of the stars, but they were too strange to estimate. He thought of the trees and grass, but most of his impressions of this upper world were so remote from previous knowledge that he could only accept them as they were and defer reflecting upon them till later. He did feel an enormous complacency at having led his followers here, though. But the last thing he actually thought about, before his eyes blinked shut in sleep, was that distant howling noise he had heard in the night. It was totally novel in kind, and yet there was something buried among the items of his racial heritage that told him it was good. He was first awake of all the tribesmen and he looked out into the cold and pallid grayness of before dawn. He saw trees. One side was brightly lighted by comparison and the other side was dark. He heard the tiny singing noises of the inhabitants of this place. Presently he crawled out of the cave again. The air was biting in its chill. It was an excellent reason why the giant insects could not live here but it was invigorating to Burl as he breathed it in. Presently he looked curiously for the source of the peculiar one-sided light. He saw the top of the sun as it peered above the eastern cloud bank. The sky grew lighter. He blinked and saw it rise more fully into view. He thought to look upward, and the stars that had bewildered him were nearly gone. He ran to call Saya. The rest of the tribe waked as he roused her. One by one, they followed to watch their first sunrise. The men gaped at the sun as it filled the east with colorings, and rose and rose above the seemingly steaming layer of clouds, and then appeared to spring free of the horizon and swim on upward. The women stared with all their eyes. The children blinked and shivered and crept to their mothers for warmth. The women enclosed them in their cloaks, and they thawed and peered out once more at the glory of sunshine and the day. Very soon, too, they realized that warmth came from the great shining body in the sky. The children presently discovered a game. It was the first game they had ever played. It consisted of running into a shaded place until they shivered, and then of running out into warm sunshine once more until this dawning fear was the motive for such playing as they did now they gleefully made a game of sunshine in this first morning of their life above the clouds the tribesmen ate of the food they had brought from below but there was not an indefinite amount of food left burl ate and considered darkly and presently summoned his followers attention They were quite contented and, for the moment, felt no need for his guidance. But he felt need of admiration. He spoke abruptly. We do not want to go back to the place we came from, he said sternly. We must look for food here, so we can stay for always. Today we find food. It was a seizure of the initiative. It was the linking of what the folks most craved with obedience to Burl. It was the device by which dictators seize power, and it was the instinctive action of a leader. The eating men murmured agreement. There was a certain definite idea of goodness, not virtue, but of things desirable, associated with what Burl did and what he commanded. His tribe was gradually forming a habit of obedience, though it was a very fragile habit up till now. He led them, exploring, as soon as they had eaten. All of them, of course. They straggled irregularly behind him. They came to a brook and regarded it with amazement. There were no leeches, no greenish algae, no foaming masses of scum. It was clear, greatly daring. Burl tasted it. He drank the first really potable water in a very long time for his race on this planet. It was not fouled by drainage through molds or rusts. Dor drank after him, Jack. Corrie tasted and instantly bade her children drink. Even Otama drank suspiciously and then raised her voice in shrill complaint that Burl had not led them to this place sooner. Tet and Dick became convinced that there were no deadly things lurking in it and splashed each other. Dick slipped and sat down hard on white stuff that yielded and almost splashed. He got up and looked fearfully at what he thought might be a deadly slime. Then he yelped shrilly. He sat down on and crushed part of a bed of mushrooms, but they were tiny, clean, and appetizing. They were miniatures of the edible mushrooms the tribe fed on. Burl smelled and finally tasted one. It was, of course, nothing more or less than a perfectly normal edible mushroom, growing to the size that mushrooms originally grew on Earth. It grew on a shaded place in enormously rich soil. It had been protected from direct sunlight by trees, but it had not the means or the stimulus to become a monster. He ate it. He carefully composed his features. Then he announced the find to his followers. There was food here, he told them sternly, but in this splendid world which he had led them food was small. There would be no great enemies here, but the food would have to be sought in small objects instead of great ones. They must look at this place and seek others like it in order to find food." The tribesmen were doubtful, but they plucked mushrooms, whole ones, instead of merely breaking off parts of their tops. With deep astonishment, they recognized the miniature objects as familiar things in smalld. These mushrooms had the same savor, but they were not coarse or stringy or tough like the giants. They melted in the mouth. Life in this place to which Burl had led them was delectable. Truly the doings of Burl were astonishing. When the oldest of Corey's children found the beetle on a leaf, and they recognized it, and instead of being bigger than a man and a thing to flee from, it was less than an inch in size and helpless against them. They were entranced. From that moment onward, they would really follow Burl anywhere in the happy conviction that he could only bring good to everybody. The opinion could have drawbacks, and it need not always even be true, but Burl did nothing to discourage it. And then, near midday, they made a discovery even greater than that of familiar food in unfamiliar sizes. They were struggling at the time through a vast patch of bushes with thorns on them. They were not used to thorns, which they deeply distrusted. Eventually, they would find out that the glistening dark fruit were blackberries, and would rejoice in them. But at this first encounter, they were uneasy in the midst of such an untouched berry patch they heard noises in the distance the sound was made up of cries of varying pitch some of which were loud and abrupt and others longer and less loud the people did not understand them in the least they could have been cries of human beings perhaps but they were not cries of pain also they were not language they seemed to express a tremendous Zestful excitement. They had no overtone of horror. And Burl and his folk had known no excitement among insects except frenzy. They could not imagine what sort of tumult this could be. But to Burl these sounds had something of the timbre of the yelping noises of the night before. He had felt drawn to that sound. He liked it. He liked this. He led the way boldly toward the agitated noises. Presently, after a mile or so, he and his people came out of breast-high weeds. Saya was immediately behind him. The others trailed, Tama complaining bitterly that there was no need to track down sounds which could only mean danger. They emerged in a space of bare stone above a small and grassy amphitheater. The tumult came from its center. A pack of dogs was joyously attacking something that Burl could not see clearly. They were dogs. They barked zestfully, and they yelped and snarled and yapped in a dozen different voices. And they were having a thoroughly good time, though it might not be so good for the thing they attacked. One of them sighted the humans. He stopped stock still and barked. The others whirled and saw the humans as they came out into view. The tumult ceased abruptly. There was silence. The tribesmen saw creatures with four legs only. They had never before seen any living thing, with fewer than six except men. Spiders had eight. The dogs did not have mandibles. They did not have wing cases. They did not act like insects. It was stupefying. And the dogs saw men. Whom they had never seen before. Much more important, they smelled men. And the difference between man smell and insect smell was so vast because through hundreds of generations the dogs had not smelled anything with warm blood save their own kind. The difference in smell was so great in kind that the dogs did not react with suspicion but with a fascinated curiosity. This was an unparalleled smell. It was, even in its novelty, an overwhelmingly satisfying smell. The dogs regarded the men with their heads on one side, sniffing in the deepest possible amazement, amazement so intense that they could not possibly feel hostility. One of them whined a little because he did not understand. End of Chapter 10